0: pretty cool when the kids can read your mind (laughs) they know when to go before you tell them you uh might remember that we're uh, considering together as a church in these days uh the fact that we live between the first and the second coming of jesus and uh that's that's where we are today and um The Bible has so much to say about the second coming, but some of it is so tough that a lot of Christians just ignore it and don't pay a lot of attention. Uh, It's kind of hard to digest. But uh, there's so much in the scriptures, uh, for every prophecy there is about Jesus' first coming, about Christmas, uh, there are eight prophecies about Jesus' second coming. And uh, what's going to happen when he comes back and what's going to surround it and so forth. And there are also large, uh, a large number of promises that are associated with Jesus' return, uh, so much so that when we embrace those promises and uh, you know believe those promises, our lives begin to fill with hope about what's yet to come, uh, when our perspective is not limited to just the confines of this life Um, and we begin to understand that there's an afterlife and that the Lord's coming will sort of put an end to this chapter of our lives and the end of time and will introduce uh, eternity to us and so when we really begin to embrace some of those promises there's a change that happens in our spirits and in our hearts so the theme verse that uh, I sort of picked for this series of messages from Romans 15, verse 13, says this, may the God of hope, the God of hope, there are three non-negotiable absolutes in the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. We all have those three in common together. Uh, and when the God of hope, the God who gives us hope, when the God of hope uh, fills you with May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Now, I think everybody I know would like and embrace more joy and more peace in their life, right? In the midst of all the things that happen to us over the course of life. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. If you'll take God at his word and embrace those promises, he will... Uh, fill us the God of hope will fill us with joy and hope so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we might abound in hope and uh, you know given what's going on in our world today and in Israel in particular and in the Middle East and in different uh, you know experiences that are kind of international but also in our own personal lives uh, when tragedy comes and when difficulties come and all of that uh, Imagine abounding in hope almost in spite of all the things that the enemy can throw at us over the course of our lifetime. And so that's, uh, you know, hope fills us with that joy and peace. And the Bible goes on uh, and explains to us uh, that we should set our hope on God. Set our hope. uh, In fact, uh, in Peter, Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace of that's to be given to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, when is the revelation of Jesus gonna happen? Well, it's the second coming. When Christ comes back, set your hope fully. Not just, well, I'll put a little bit of hope there, and the rest of my hope is that everything's gonna work out in life, you know, and so on. No, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, you know what, every eye will see him. And last week we saw that probably every ear will hear him. We saw how Paul describes to the Thessalonian church the three sounds that will happen uh, when Christ comes back. And uh, not only that, uh, but um, when he comes back, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the glory of God that this Jesus who is coming is Lord of the universe he's the Lord he is the one who created it he is the one who controls it he's the one who holds it together he's the one for whom it was created and everybody will recognize this and so you know I'm talking uh, at the beginning here of, of, of the three great purposes for Jesus to come back And I suggested last week that the first great purpose of the Lord coming back is to finally be recognized for who he is. In other words, in biblical language, we would say he's coming back to be glorified. He's coming back to be appreciated for who he is, to be glorified. He's coming back, you know, uh, and being recognized for who he really is. And so that's the first great promise. And, and a number of scriptures you know, talk about this. Uh, Titus talks about the blessed hope. He says the grace of God has already appeared. When Jesus came the first time, he came in humility. When he comes back, he's coming in glory. He's coming in majesty. Worship is majesty, right? He is who he is and who we know him to be. The whole world will recognize who he really is. Uh, for the grace of God has already appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to be self-controlled, upright, godly, live godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us and is coming back to save us. And so uh, it's the glory of God that's the first, it's going to be spectacular when he comes back. First great purpose of God. And uh, I think when we start actually looking forward to this event, when we look forward and and we believe and we embrace uh, with all of our being the reality that this is going to happen, then we begin to do what the Bible calls love the Lord's appearing not just believe in the Lord's appearing, but actually fall in love with the Lord's appearing. Like, wow, we can't wait for the Lord to come back and how exciting it's going to be and how our lives are going to be vindicated and uh, how our Lord is going to be known by the whole world and so on. And so we begin to love the Lord's appearing. We begin to anticipate. And uh, when that happens, the Bible says, you know what, we change from the inside out. All of a sudden, You know, there's a joy and a peace that can't be known apart from uh, the Lord coming back. And so, uh, that was the first great purpose that the Lord would get to be known for who he really is. Now, this morning, I'd like to direct your attention to the second, what I would call the second great purpose of the Lord's return. And uh, it's not as much fun as we had last week thinking about the Lord being glorified you know, uh, uh, all over the world. But um, our God is a holy God. You know that, holy, holy, holy. And so God defines what's right and what's wrong. God is the one who defines what's righteous and what's unrighteous, or what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. Watching the news this past week, I heard the phrase several times, moral clarity, Different politicians would be talking about what's going on in Israel, and they would say, You know, what we really need here is moral quality, uh, uh, clarity. And you know what? Um, I don't think you can have moral clarity without God. I don't think you can define right and wrong apart from God. It's just my opinion versus yours as to what's right and what's wrong. Until we bring God's word into the picture or into the relationship and we have a definitive word from God about what's right and wrong God is a holy God and so when Jesus comes back a second great purpose will be to judge the world according to God's holiness Jesus will vindicate the holiness of God and the world will know what's right and what's wrong but it'll be an absolutely horrible time He'll bring the judgment of God, the fury, if you will, of God's wrath against all that's evil and wicked. In the book of Revelation, um, Jesus is pictured as coming back on a white horse, Revelation 19, you might remember. And uh, here's what it says, I saw heaven open up and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, like they look right through you. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And uh, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's coming back not only to be glorified for who he is, but also to bring the judgment of God. The world that we live in is on a collision course with its creator and doesn't know it and isn't aware of the judgment that is coming upon it. The world is unaware. And uh, when Jesus returns, he will bring an end to mankind's rebellion against God in all of its shapes and forms. As you know, we were created in the image and likeness of God to be like him, but our original parents gave in to the solicitation of Satan uh, to disobey God, and when they fell, the Bible says, all of mankind fell with them. And death then was introduced into the world and uh, is still with us today and will be until the Lord comes back and resurrects those of us who have put our faith and trust in him. Now, uh, death, you know, is simply the, it means separation. And so death, when we think about it, physical death is just the separation of our soul from our body. And the scriptures tell us that our soul, the non-material part of us, goes to be with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the lord right remember paul he was like at one point in his life hard pressed you know he was about to die and he didn't know whether it'd be better to stay and serve or go and be with the lord and and, you know be happy so death is really just the separation of our soul from our body spiritual death is the separation of our spirit from god um back in the garden of eden when adam and eve fell um The Bible tells us that from that point on, people who come into the world come into the world with a spirit that's dead in trespasses and sins. It separates us from God. And when Jesus came to bring reconciliation so that we could be right with God through his sacrifice on the cross and through the shedding of his blood, and when we embrace that, the good news of the gospel, and we're brought back together again, God takes his spirit and. Animates or brings to life our spirit, and all of a sudden we're able to begin to understand uh, God's word, and all of a sudden we have a whole different uh, approach to life, and the reality of God's presence begins to dwell within us, and our spirit comes uh, back to life. And so, all through the Bible, uh, both Old Testament and New Testament, all through the Bible, uh, there is a day that God keeps speaking about called the Day of the Lord the day of the Lord. It's spoken about all through Scripture. And uh, whenever the day of the Lord is brought up in Scripture, it's never good. Uh, The passage of Scripture that was read for us today from Isaiah talked about the day of the Lord, uh, the day of the Lord's judgment. And all through Scripture, uh, the anticipation of the day of the Lord. There are eight different prophets in the Old Testament, who specifically use this term, day of the Lord. 19 different times it's explained. Three New Testament writers use this specific term. Uh, And then there are seven other passages of Scripture that talk about the same time, but use a different phrase to describe it, like the day of uh, Christ or the day of Jesus Christ. But it's talking about this day of the Lord, when the Lord returns, uh, to bring down wrath of God on everything that's evil and wrong. And it's true, isn't it? Haven't you said this sometimes? Like, Lord, why don't you do something about all the evil that's in the world? You know, And, and God's answer, I think, would be, well, I, I am. I have. And the Bible says that the only reason that it hasn't happened yet is because I'm waiting for all of the people who uh, are Gentiles to be gathered in uh, all the people who make up the true church all around the globe, you know, to when the full amount of those people are gathered in, uh, then uh, the day of the Lord will commence and begin. And so there are a lot of different uh, passages of Scripture that talk about this. Uh, in the Old Testament, the whole book of uh, Joel is dedicated to the day of the Lord. In um, in the New Testament. Um, Well, in the Old Testament, I wanted to read a passage for you from Zephaniah, which is one of the prophets who mentions this in in Zephaniah chapter 1, and here's what it says. Uh, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. Uh, The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. Uh, The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath. Uh, is that day a day of distress and anguish a day of ruin and devastation a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty embattlements I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on that day of wrath, the day of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The day of the Lord. Uh, Whenever it's talked about in the scripture, it's always bad. It's always tough. Um, Peter tells us, you know, uh, in the New Testament, uh, reminds us uh, why it is that this hasn't happened yet. In 2 Peter 3 and verse uh, 9, it says, uh, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that anybody should perish. It's not God's will for anybody to be caught up in his wrath. You know That's why he sent Jesus to be a savior from all of this that the day of the Lord is. Uh, but that uh, all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and its works uh, that are done on it will be exposed. Again the day of the lord old new testament it's always the same and it's really really important that we as believers understand uh the role of the day of the lord it's in order to understand end times it's very uh important to understand uh the day of the lord and so uh there are a number i wrote down uh on some of these other passages of scripture that describe this day here's some phrases that are included Uh, The day of the Lord is a time when God rises to shake terribly the earth. The day of the Lord is a time of destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord is is a day of divine wrath and fierce anger. The day of the Lord is the day when God's indignation and fury will be against the nations. So the day of the Lord as a concept now remember we 're uh, kind of keyed in on the Thessalonian church, and the day of the Lord as a concept was taught to them by the apostle paul and uh, But they had questions about the day of the Lord, when is this going to happen what 's it going to be like? when you know what are uh, kind of the parameters of it, and so forth and so because they had questions, especially about the timing of the day of the Lord, Paul writes back to them, and in first Thessalonians Uh, Chapter 5, here's what Paul writes to them. Now, Paul had been there, remember, for three weeks and then got run out of town. And then um, he writes back to them and he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How many people have heard that phrase in the past, right? It come like a thief in the night, okay? While people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Come like a thief in the night. I remember hearing that as a kid in Sunday school and growing up thinking, you know, that the Lord could just show up like that anytime. And boy, you better be ready, you know. And uh, I had a teacher that kind of used that, I think, and and instilled in me this kind of sense that, You know, any minute you could wake up and there would be the Lord. And uh, I think graphically, uh, John describes in Revelation uh, what this is going to be like. And again, you might be familiar with this passage, but you'll notice that Uh, both in Isaiah and the Old Testament, and the Lord speaks about this, and uh, here John speaks about it in Revelation, that right before the Lord comes, there will be these signs in the planets, you know, the sun won't give its light, the moon, you know, will turn blood red, you know, and the stars will fall from the sky, there's these cosmic disturbances uh, that come, and so, uh, John talks about this, you know, John, you remember, was taken to heaven and uh, showed around and showed some of the future, and then he wrote it down for us, and so here's what he says. Uh, when the Lord opened the sixth seal, seal—or seven seals, you remember, uh, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was this great earthquake, and the sun became black like sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars fell from the sky, Uh, fell to the earth like a fig tree sheds its figs in the winter, shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll and is being rolled up, and every mountain and every island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us, Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath, their wrath, God's wrath and the Lord's wrath, for the great day of their wrath has come who can stand. The second great purpose of the Lord's coming back, right, is for judgment against everything that's evil and against all those uh, that are wicked. Um, but um, that passage in Thessalonians I didn't read the whole thing Okay, the first couple of verses the first to the third verse says you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there's peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman they won't escape next verse, verse 4 But you, Christians, you believers, but you are not in the dark like the rest of the world. It's not like you don't know that this is coming because you have been enlightened, right? And so Paul says, but you, it changed my whole attitude towards the second coming of Christ when I finally understood this. You're not in the dark, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. It'll come upon the world like a thief in the night, but not for you. You get it. You understand. You've been enlightened. I wrote my Bible so that you could read it and get it. And you know what to look for and what the signs are before his coming and so forth. You are not in the dark, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the dark or the night or the darkness. So then, let's not be asleep like others and so on. And he goes on. So Paul wrote to this Thessalonian church, and he said, Look, you know, the, the church, the people who trust Christ are different than the rest of the world. This isn't going to come as a surprise to us. We're actually looking for the day. We're waiting for the day. We're reading the signs. We're trying to figure out the scriptures so that we can understand and put things into perspective. So the church at Thessalonica, you know, Uh, Paul tries to straighten them out and again I would say the day of the Lord is so important to understand uh, when it comes to understanding end times and the Lord's return the Bible has so much to say about it uh, again but I think it's so hard to listen to that we just kind of tune it out it's like more than we can digest when we read about what's going to happen when the Lord actually comes back so You know, I was watching TV this week as I imagine that many of you were uh, watching the news and thinking about what's happening to Israel and trying to make sense of it and trying to take these events that are happening today and fit them into, you know, what I know anyway, which is limited, but about prophecy and what I understand and trying to fit in where are we at and, and what's really happening. And how do we understand this from God's point of view? You know, I've always thought that life is kind of like uh, uh, an artist's picture. You know, you ever noticed that uh, most art has what we would call a background and a foreground? And in the foreground is kind of the action and what's happening, you know. But there's always a background, you know, of uh, sky or sunset or, you know, sunrise or whatever, mountains and so forth. And I kind of think... You know, the background of our lives is the spiritual reality that God is revealing to us that the uh, foreground or the immediacy of our life or the temporariness of our life in this world is set up against. And so in order to understand the events in the foreground, we kind of have to look at the background so that we can uh, have perspective and understand the things that are going on in the contemporary scene. And so I'm watching the news and I'm thinking about all this stuff and, uh, you know, I'm talking to God a little bit. I'm praying and I'm like, God, these are your people, Israel. They, you chose these people. You love these people. You have a plan for these people. How can you sit by and allow what's happening to happen? And so I'm I'm talking to the Lord and it came into my mind to... Um, Go back and read in Romans because, uh, in order to understand the position of the Jewish people today, uh, the best passage of Scripture is Romans 9, 10, and 11, where the Apostle Paul, who is Jewish, writes about where the Jewish people are today and where they will be in the future. And all of a sudden, when you take that and take it literally, you know, the Bible, when it comes to interpretation of the Scriptures, is very important, right? People have a lot of different ideas based on their way of interpreting scripture. And so I would suggest to you that, number one, the very best way to interpret scripture is to allow scripture to comment on other scriptures. So you take what's, what God has revealed you know, uh, in other passages and bring it to the that passage and try to understand it, and that we take the scriptures literally unless they are... Uh, specifically like a parable or something where uh, they're not to be understood literally, but they're a story that gives us a moral or uh, a truth that uh, through the parable, through the story. But anyway, if you go back to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you can begin to understand the position of the Jewish people today where it actually says that God has hardened their hearts in response to their rejection of Christ. And uh, you can understand that the Jewish community today is not the same. It is the same in some ways, but it is not uh, the same as the church. And there's a certain kind of interpretation that uh, is kind of popular today that says, you know, there is no future for the Jewish people because the church has taken the place of the Jewish community. And uh, I would tell you that's absolutely false. And uh, God has made promises to Israel that he has not yet fulfilled but promises he will and that there is a future for Israel uh, and so on. And so trying to uh, understand all of this and put it together in a way that, you know, uh, fits with the contemporary, the foreground of what's going on today and uh, remembering that the Bible actually says that what happens to Israel is designed to teach everybody else, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that the things that happen to Israel is God's way of telling the world how he relates to people. And so when we take, you know, we spent some time with Moses and Israel's history and and some of the things that have happened in the past and uh, some of the things that are happening today and you you begin to understand this is God revealing himself as to how he deals uh, with uh, the whole world. And in Old Testament times, you probably remember, uh, there are numerous occasions where God used pagan nations, okay, to correct Israel and drive Israel back to himself. Israel would wander, get out in left field someplace, and God would allow, you know, uh, different nations to come and uh, would drive them back. If you think about it, the first group we might think of is the Egyptians. Remember, they. All the Jews were down in Egypt, and God came and rescued them. And uh, they hated, you know, the way they were being treated as slaves, and so forth. And so they're willing to leave, you know. And then after that, it was the Babylonians, and then after that, it was the Medes and the Persians. In Jesus' day, it was the Roman Empire uh, that ruled in Israel. Uh, and then in New Testament times, um, you know, God sent His Son Jesus, His only begotten Son, uh, and as a nation. There were individuals, but as a nation, Israel rejected the Messiah, their Messiah, Jesus. And uh, as a result of that, uh, there were consequences of that. And, uh, you know, and again, in talking to the Lord and thinking about what you know about prophecy, in the Old Testament, remember the prophet Daniel, who was uh, taken captive into Babylon, and God revealed to him in Daniel chapter 2 that Colossus, remember that big, uh, statue and it, it listed if you study it and study history alongside of it uh, you'll see that uh, these nations that dominated Israel you know uh, have five or six of them have been revealed again depending on your interpretation but there's eight altogether. and uh, so uh, you know again I'm talking to the Lord I'm like hey is this the eighth is, is Islam the eighth empire that's going to take out israel and dominate israel because in that colossus when you read about it you know the very last empire that is made up of the toes and daniel tells us that the toes are made up of iron and clay so it's a very fragile kind of empire and i'm talking to the lord and i'm like I- is this the sunnis and the shiites because you know what iron and clay don't mix right so it's fragile and they don't get along with each other and you know and there 's ten toes, ten nations and and you start trying to piece the different prophecies together to say, "Hey, are we at that point we're at we 're down to that last empire and uh you can read it for yourself you know uh, in in Daniel chapter two and it 's amazing um to think about how accurate that prophecy is about all these different empires who have ruled in Israel and messed with Israel over the years. And, um, and then, you know, uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 17, where uh, this last empire is described as a beast, okay? And you, you can read through that, and it's complicated to try to figure out what's meant and so forth. But in Revelation chapter 20, there's a reference to a group of people uh, who, uh, a group of souls who have been beheaded, uh, it says beheaded right there in Revelation chapter 20, and so I say to myself, well, who beheads people today? And I'm watching the TV and I'm thinking, and, and I'm not a date setter, and I'm not like a panicking and like ah, this is the end, the Lord is coming. Let's you know, uh, you know. And what happened in the Thessalonian church? You know what they did? They they thought that the day of the Lord had already started, so they quit their jobs. They started mooching off of other people. They said, why work? You know, the Lord's coming. We're going to get out of here. Let's just, you know, party on. And and Paul Paul gets on their case in the second uh, letter that he writes about all of that. But uh, that's when I went to Romans and just asked, you know, where is this all going? And uh, what's really happening both now and in the future for the Jewish people? And the whole difference you know, in those uh, three chapters about the law and the gospel uh, between works and faith. And uh, also, uh, when I did that, I also remembered that uh, way back in Genesis, you know, God sort of describes, and I feel like, you know, I was sitting in my family room watching the TV, watching this unfold, and God talked about it way back in Genesis when we talk about, uh uh the descendants, you remember the uh, Abraham, God came to Abraham and said look, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you and out of that I'm gonna bless all the peoples of the world and so from Abraham came Isaac, right? Eventually Abraham and Sarah had a boy named Isaac And uh, Isaac uh, had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons that turned into the 12 tribes of Israel. Out of Israel came Jesus, the savior, who is a blessing to everybody in the world who will embrace him and so forth. But before all that happened, you remember, uh, they were getting old, uh, Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah's like, you know, this is never gonna happen. I'm never gonna get pregnant. She had never had a child. And, uh, you know, they're up like around 100 years old. And so she's like, you know, why don't you just go into my handmaid and have a son by her? And so Abraham listens, right? And they have a son named Ishmael. And Ishmael, out of, just like all the Jews uh, descended from um, Isaac, all the Arab people descended from Ishmael. If you trace it all the way back, the whole Arab world descended out of Ishmael. And so um, in Genesis chapter 16, uh, you know, the two wives don't get along too well, Sarah and uh, Hagar. And so they split up and God finds, or an angel finds Hagar and says this. The angel of the Lord uh, said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for the multitude. There's gonna be so many Ishmaelites if you will, uh, that you can't even number them. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. God hears. Okay? Because the Lord listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Ishmael, your kid. Imagine an angel telling you, you're pregnant, you're going to have a donkey of a kid. Okay? Listen to this, though. His hand is going to be against everyone. Okay? And everyone's hand is going to be against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Who are his kinsmen? The Jewish people. Right? Through Abraham, the father. Now, I'm reading this and I'm sitting in my family room in 2023 and this, which was written in Genesis chapter 16 is playing out on my TV. And so to understand what's going on, you know, we can go all the way back to the roots and to know that God, you know, has revealed what he wants us to know in his word by way of putting it all together. And, uh, When I just think about this, it's kind of crazy. So in Romans, um, in in Romans chapter 11, uh, sort of distilling everything that's in Romans 9, 10, and 11, when we come down to verse 22 in Romans 11, here's what the Bible tells us to do. All right? Note the kindness and the severity of the Lord. Note the kindness and the severity of the Lord. So, we're really good at noting the kindness of the Lord. We love the gospel. We love what the Lord did for us. But when it comes to the severity of the Lord, when it comes to trying to explain to people out there, well, what do I need to be saved from? We always talk about, well, I'm saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath that's coming, you know? And next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about. Salvation as being the third major purpose for Jesus to come back. But Paul says this. He says, note then, the kindness in this, as kind as the gospel is, as great as grace is, the severity of the Lord is just as strong. His hatred for evil, because why? Because it ruins his people. All sin is what's bad for us, right? It's what kills us. And that's why God hates sin, because it destroys us. And He's going to destroy it. And uh, consider then the kindness and the severity of God's severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The kindness and the severity of God. Which end? Which of the receiving ends would you like to be on, right? The kindness of the Lord is unbelievable. It's all by grace. It's all dependent on him. The kindness, but also the severity of the Lord. Wow, we're done. Okay, one last passage. Uh, Second uh, Thessalonians, you know, where Paul, again, I think demonstrates the kindness and severity of the Lord, reiterates this. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, you got problems with people, people coming again, you got trials, issues, and so forth, uh, afflictions that are happening. Uh, God will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not follow the gospel. Who do not know God and who do not follow the gospel. Okay? When he comes on that day, and then the second part of this verse says, You know, uh, well, I left off a verse. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, separation, separation, away from his glory, from his might, when he comes on that day. Then, when he comes on that day, he will be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all those who have believed. Where we just touched on that last week a little bit. You know that song, uh, I Can Only Imagine? What it's going to be like when I meet the Lord face-to-face, I can only imagine. Well, here's what the Bible says we're going to be doing when we meet the Lord face-to-face. We're going to be glorifying him, and we're going to be marveling that he's way more than we ever even thought, right? That's what we're going to be doing on that day. But that day will be a day of kindness and a day of severity at the same time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we really are thankful that you are a holy God and that you will not tolerate sin or anything that's against you or anything that will hurt your people and that you will eventually destroy uh, not only all the evil and wickedness but Satan himself who's the author of all sin and destroy them in the lake of fire and when we read about what that's going to be like and how it's going to be in the foreground of uh, the day when you come back, um, it's hard for us to digest. It's hard for us to you know, embrace. We're so used to thinking as Christians about your kindness, about your grace, about your sacrifice of your son, your one and only son. And Father, when we think about the other side against which this salvation has been given to us so freely and so graciously and full of mercy, when we think about the severity of your holiness and we remember that Jesus, when he comes, is going to uh, gonna verify your holiness. Uh, and what a terrible day that's going to be for people, Father, who haven't embraced the good news of the gospel. And so I just pray this morning, Father, that as we think about these things, you would inspire us to inv- evangelism. I pray that you would help us if we have Jewish friends or Gentile friends who don't know you, uh, neighbors, family members, Father, that we would do our best to represent you and to represent your kindness. And we know that there's a day coming, Father. We don't have to, you know, vent your vengeance. You're gonna do that. And so we can be free to love people and to do what Jesus did when he was here uh, with the background of knowing that he's coming back. And so give us wisdom, courage, and uh, put words in our mouth and a spirit in our hearts that would embrace others for your sake, in whose name we pray, amen.